Amen and amen and amen. How we doing, church? Doing good? You look good. Way better than last week. Hey, glad you're here. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, please go to Luke chapter 24. And as you're turning there, just ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, this is the day that we have been praying for and fasting for and preparing for. Today is Resurrection Sunday. Amen? I hope you're excited. And listen, if you're a guest with us, let me just say this. I don't really love the word guest, all right? I don't know what other word to use because, like, when we have guests in our home, we sort of expect and kind of look forward when they leave. You know what I mean? Like, even if they're family guests, we're like, all right, it's about that time. Or if you come over for dinner, we hope you stay for dinner. We roll out the red carpet for you as a guest, but then we don't want you to stay at our house. But if you are here today and it's kind of your first time, we really want you to be a part of the family. Uh, so so we, we just, you're a family already, okay? And so I hope, that, I hope that you'll love Jesus and I hope you'll like this church and that this 1122 won't be just something you attend once and, and you'll be a guest at an event, but that you could actually belong here in this big dysfunctional family that we call the Church of 1122. And of all the times to check it out, today is the best day to be here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be. We're going to walk through the entire chapter, so you have to listen fast. All right, 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, that was Sunday, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, and the they here, we'll find out in a little while, is a few women, that these women, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. Now, here, here's something that you just got to stop real quick and, and hear. Why in the world would women be the first ones described in the Bible as going to the tomb? Because in the first century, um, uh, women, it was not like today when we were equal in the eyes of the law, but, but in the first century, women's testimony was not even allowed in court. And so why in the world would the gospel writers say that it was women to, that were the very first ones to witness an empty tomb? And here's why. Because it was the women that were the first ones to witness the empty tomb. These are actual historical events. If you're making this up, this is not how you make it up. And so these women, they go to the tomb, and, and here's what they're looking for. They're looking for dead Jesus, all right? And they're bringing the spices, and why are they going to see Jesus, uh, dead Jesus' body? Because probably some men tried to wrap him up and take care of the situation. And like in my house, women had, my wife has to come along behind me and kind of clean up after the cleanup. So that's why I think they're going. So verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, here's the thing that you've got to understand. Is that, is that they were expecting to find dead Jesus. That they didn't get it. After following Jesus around for three years and hearing all the stories, they missed the whole point. That Jesus came to be crucified, dead, buried, and on the third day be resurrected. And so in verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men, these angels, say to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? I want to stop and I want you to ask that same question of yourself. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And you may be saying, like, what are you talking about? I, I mean, I watched The Walking Dead, but I don't even look for the living or the dead. I'm just kind of living. But it, the reality is, is that we all go, looking, we all go to the tomb looking for, for life, looking for purpose, and looking for meaning. And, the, and most of us, even those of us that love Jesus or believe we're Christians or whatever, we all have a tendency or, a, or a, a propensity to look for life and meaning and purpose in things that don't give life and meaning and purpose. All the things of this world, and some of the most popular ones are, it's self-improvement. One of the first places we go to try to find life is this idea of self-improvement. And you know it's true. We all do this. 
I mean, you walk into Barnes and Noble, and what's the largest section in the entire store? It's the self-help section, the self-improvement section. And we think in our minds, if I could just, if I could just lose a few pounds, all right, tighten up my budget, maybe buy a nicer car, if I could just be a better version of me, if I could do some of those things, if I could just, um, you know, learn a new skill, learn a new habit, learn a new language, if I could do a little better here, then I would just be fully and finally satisfied. And the reality is, that's a big fat lie. You know how it's a lie? You know how I know it's a lie? Because it's April. It's April, and you haven't lost a pound. That's just a fact, okay? I weighed in this morning, and I weighed the exact same thing I weighed on January 1st, and I promised, I promised I was going to shed some. And the reality is we're all still fat, all right? It's just true. But we set out on these, like, self-improvement deals. Or, or we think, man, as soon as I get this degree, man, as soon as I get this degree, as soon as I get into the next stage of my life, then. But here's the reality, man. You've been trying that and trying that and trying that. And even when you've obtained the goals that you set, what did it do for you? Did it give you life? No, most of us, it just left us empty. Or if we don't turn there, we think, okay, well, that was kind of a waste of time. So maybe I'll turn to religion. And really, all religion is, I got bad news for you. Or really, all religion is, is religion is just self-improvement with an amen. With a robe and a funny hat and a wand and some special prayers. And then you think, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll just do whatever the holy man up front tells me to do. And you've tried that before. You've tried to please God by acting better. And on Saturday night, when you lay your head down on the bed, and you think, oh, man, I'm exhausted. And I did everything they said to do. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't chew, and I tried to avoid the girls that do, and I'm still just missing something. Because you've been down that road, and it's exhausting. And so then, a lot of times, we turn to the, to the things of this world, just this kind of merry-go-round of normality. And we think, man, i got to go to school and i got to study hard. Why? So I can get to another school. So I can study hard. Why? So I can get into a third school. So I can study hard. Why? So I can go and get a good job. Why? So I can get a bunch of stuff. Why? To impress people that I don't even know. Why? So that I could die one day and leave it all to people that I've never even met before. And you think, is that really it? And you're like, yeah, but I'm just trying to keep up with the Joneses. i got bad news for you. The Joneses are going to hell. All right? You don't want to keep up with them. And if your last name is Jones, then please surrender to Jesus. So it's not true. <laughs> Every time I say that, people come out and be like, hey, I'm Ted Jones. I'm like, uh. So we, we do. We try to get all that stuff. And all of us have thought that before. All of us have thought, man, if I just get some stuff, it'll help me. It'll make me feel better. You get a nice new jacket. You do whatever. Let me assure you of this. All of the stuff that you think would bring you happiness will one day be sold in our thrift store at the end of the block down there. Every single one of it. All of it. It just, it just doesn't produce what, what it promises or what it... What it tells you it will. Or, so sometimes we chase after the things of this world by just trying to quench every appetite that we have. We say, you know what, I'm just going to pursue the American dream, life, liberty, and the pursuit of me getting what I want. And all we do is we go after instant gratification. Feed me, feed me, feed me. Whatever desire pops up at any moment, you go, yeah, that's what life is all about. And it does not take very long to figure out that that is an empty existence. And you feel like, man, I'm looking for life, but I just can't find life. And then you watch Jerry Maguire, and you hear him, and you think, that's it. That's what I need. I need to find the one, one, one. And you go on this relationship pursuit, because you think, if I find her, if I find him, then, and only then, will they complete me. That is a complete pile of scubilon, okay? If you're new to our church, scubilon is a Greek word used in the book of Philippians. Uh, in Greek, it's trans it, it means... Uh, um, Slang for animal dung, all right? So that's like bull scubilon. That's what that means. 
And because so psychologists call that kind of attitude codependency, that you say that, all right, here's the keys to my happiness and satisfaction, and you're going to give them to some boy or some girl, even your husband or wife, and say, when you get your act together, then as a result of that, then I will be fully and finally satisfied. Listen, even as a marriage, ask any, anybody that's happily married, been, happy, been happily married a little while, that, that your, spouse, your spouse can't live up under that pressure. They are not your functional savior. Jesus and Jesus alone is. And so every single one of us, we have a tendency to all go running to the tomb looking for life and looking for meaning. And the angels say, why are you looking for life among things that don't bring life? Now, just so you know, because you may be thinking, man, is this dude just anti-everything? No, because reality is, is when you find your life in Christ, all of those things that I just mentioned can actually be expressions of joy. That you've got a good dad that likes to give good gifts to his kids. And cash and prizes and, and relationships and career and all of those things you can actually enjoy in him as long as you're not looking for those things to bring you the joy. But you're looking for life in Christ and then as an expression of that, yeah, then and only then can you enjoy the stuff of this world. And so, and so the angels ask him, why do you seek the living among the dead? Verse 6, they say, he is not here but has risen Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? This makes me feel better as a preacher. Can I just tell you that? That Jesus for three years taught over and over and over and over. He only had one message. That he was going to come, suffer, and die on the cross for our sins and on the third day be resurrected. And on the third day, the disciples show up and they're like, where's he at? They still didn't get it. And I think the angels are like, what is wrong with you people? From heaven, we thought you were all going to be huddled up. At the, do, at the tomb door, all right? And on the third day, you were going to be like, six, five, four, here he comes, y'all wait, three, two, dun, 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 and y'all were nowhere. Don't you remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? Seems like you'd have been paying attention to that part. Verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day. And they remembered his words. Oh, yeah. I remember that. I was too busy eating 5,000 fish sandwiches and that kind of stuff, all right? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11. There used to be 12. One didn't make it. Come back. We'll talk about that one day. Told it to the 11 and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Why? Because in the first century... The men are thinking, man, we can't believe these women. The reality is the backbone of the church from the very beginning have been women. The very first evangelists were these women, unqualified according to the court system to, to be the first ones to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, but yet most qualified in, in God's economy, and they're the very backbone of what it means to talk and spread the word about Jesus. And so they don't believe them, though. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage every single person in here, man, woman, student, everybody, to be like Peter. Like, don't just take my word for it. But here's what Peter did. Peter's like, I don't know if I believe you. I've got to go check this out for myself. Please let me encourage you. If you would consider yourself, eh, I don't think I'm a Christian, or maybe I am, or maybe I used to be, I'm not sure how that all works, or, or I'm not at all, and the only reason I'm here is because Nana won't feed me fried chicken and deviled eggs unless I go to church with her, and so 
my one time a year, all right? Or even if you got tricked into being here, like some girl asked you to brunch, and then on the way here, you know, you're like, she's hot, I'll go with her, wherever. She threw you a hot pocket, now you're at Easter service, whatever, all right? (laughs) Then I just dare you, I dare you to just lean in, kind of drop your defenses a little bit, kick the tires, and check him out for yourself. That's what Peter does. He checks him out for himself, so he has to go see it for himself. Now, in the Bible, a lot of times the gospels are written like a Tarantino movie, right? It just, it just changes scenes and they don't give you any warning. So verse 13 is a different group of people in a different place, all right? So verse 13, that very day, two of them, different people, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. That word had happened, those words had happened. That's, it's very, very important, okay? They're not talking about what they believe, they're talking about what happened. Verse 15, and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing. So they're walking down the road, they're talking about the crucifixion and the supposed resurrection, and they look up and there's Jesus walking with them, but they don't recognize Jesus. They don't even see him. Or they see him, but they don't realize it's him. And the Bible says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And you may ask, I mean, if you take the Bible seriously, which I do, how could this happen? Well, some theologians say that these men who were Christ followers were under so much grief, they were so grief-stricken, they're not paying attention, and maybe they missed them that way. Also, you've got to understand that Jesus is physically, bodily resurrected, and three days before this, he has beaten to death. So maybe he's just so mangled that he's unrecognizable, and they don't realize it's him. Or, you've also got to give this possibility. If he actually is the Son of God that was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected from the grave and he wants to pull the Jedi mind trick on somebody, then he can't. This is not the Christ you're looking for. This is not the Christ we're looking for. Okay, he can do that. That's kind of what I think. So there they are, walking along, and Jesus is kind of jacking around with them, all right? And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walked? And they stood still, looking sad, and then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened There in these days, underline those words in your notes, have happened. Because here's the thing. Uh, Maybe this is new news to you, okay? Maybe you've never thought about it this way. But whether you're a Christian or not, listen, the foundation of Christianity, the foundation of, of our faith is actually not faith. See, these guys aren't talking about what they believe in. They're not talking about what they feel like. The foundation of Christianity is actually an event, it's that Jesus Christ was crucified on a, on a real cross in a real place, in a real location. And he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he physically arose from the grave. And that's what had happened. And so the foundation of Christianity is not the behavior of other Christians. The foundation of Christianity is not the behavior of churches throughout church history. The foundation of Christianity is an actual event. In fact, the very word gospel, the very word gospel means good news. And what news is, is news is the heralding or the reporting of actual events, of things that had happened. And what had happened is that Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, buried, and then rose from the grave. In fact, in early Christianity, all right, before, before the New Testament was canonized, before people could gather together in churches and sing songs and watch cool videos and all of that, before Bible studies and, you know, all of those kind of things. If you look in the early church's history, like in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, you have a hard time finding the disciples talking about what they believe in. You also have a hard time finding the disciples talking about the things that Jesus taught. In fact, 
Go to Acts chapter 4, and they only talk about one thing. They say, we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Not what we believe, but what we've seen and heard. So you know what that means? That what had happened is this event that changes not only human history, but changes eternity for forever and ever. And so he says to them, Jesus says to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now listen, maybe this will make you feel better too. Do you realize that every other major world religion or every other movement ever in the world, they, they all pretty much go the same way. That some person, some prophet, it's usually a very charismatic leader or speaker, they come on the scene and they say, hey, I've got a message. And it's either, it's either a, a new and revised message or a brand new message. And they'll say, I've heard from God and I'm going to show you the way or I'm going to teach you some principles or I'm going to help you be a better version of you or whatever it is. And they gather around them a bunch of followers or disciples and they teach this message. And, and the followers of the disciples begin to grab on to the message. And then at some point that leader dies and then the group of people left behind, they have a decision to make. What are we going to do with these teachings? What are we going to do with these messages? And so, in every major world religion, in every movement, the, the followers get together and say, hey, we can't let the teachings die. We've got to keep the dream alive. We've got to keep the teachings alive. And so they gather together and they appoint new leaders and then they take the teachings of this leader out and begin to spread it around. Do you know how our faith started? Do you know how this Christianity thing happened? When our leader, Jesus, when he's crucified, dead, and buried, you know what all the believers did? There were no believers. That at this point, there are zero Christians in the whole world because even the disciples at this point didn't believe that he'd resurrected from the grave. You know what every single one of them did? They quit. They quit. You can go to John chapter 21 and find out what Peter and all the rednecks did. They went fishing. They're like, well, nobody's going to pay us to follow the dead rabbi. I'm going fishing. All right? So I like these guys. But not only, they weren't doing it as a hobby, they were returning to their old lifestyle. They quit, they ran, they hid. They did not have a meeting about, hey, we're going to keep his teachings alive. And here's why, you know why? Jesus' teachings were all about Jesus. I mean, look through the Gospels, that's what Jesus taught about. When people would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, show us the way, he would say, I am the way. And so when he dies, then the way is dead. There's no teachings to pass along. And so these guys... These guys, on their way to Emmaus, are like, well, I guess it's over. So they thought when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, they thought the movement's over. It is finished. And so that's why they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and, they, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they have seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive, and some of us who were who were with us, went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus is saying, you've missed the whole point. And I don't know, it's, it's hard to read tone here, right? That's why you should never text anything serious, all right, or sensitive. Because it's hard to read tone. So I don't know if this is like, oh, foolish ones. Like Jesus is being sweet and kind of patting them on the head. Kind of like my grandma would say to you. If you said something really idiotic to my grandma, she would be like, oh, bless your heart. And you think, oh, that was so sweet from your grandma. She just cussed you at the highest level of old lady Baptist cussing that there is, okay? 
You do not want somebody to bless your heart. That just means you're such an idiot. Bless your heart. It's kind of similar if you like, hey, do you know Ted? And they'll be like, oh, I love him to death. That's not a good thing. There's a big but coming right after that about why you don't really like Ted. You love him to death, but he's really an idiot. So maybe Jesus is like, oh, foolish ones. Or he might be indignant saying, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. That's kind of how I read it, but it could be my own personality in here. But here's what he's saying. How did you miss the whole point? How did you miss the whole point? Here's what's crazy. These men, this group of people, they are two feet from Jesus, and they're missing Jesus. You know how bad that scares me as your pastor? That you could be face-to-face with the almighty king of kings, son of God, lamb of God, that gave his life for you and missed the whole thing. Or you could come to our church and you could miss the whole point. That you could show up and come in here and we could sing songs to Jesus, drop your kids off, let them learn about Jesus. I could preach about Jesus, read the words of Jesus. And then when you walk out from the very presence of Jesus, be two, foot, two feet from him and you might not even see Jesus. It's the point of everything we do. And sometimes I ask people, so, you know, maybe you told your friends you were coming here for the first time and, they, and they'll ask you, how'd you like it? And listen... I hope you get the point. The point's about Jesus. It's not about the parking lot. I know, there's a lot of cars out there. Or you might be like, oh, I really like the kids programming. Or you may come in here and be like, what was it? the music? It's like a Coldplay concert. And the guy next to me was crying and was doing the We Are the World wave. And I mean, what's going on with that? And the video's crazy. Some of you may be going, why is that guy not wearing a tie? Or why is he wearing a jacket? Or man, you know, whatever it is, that's not the point. The only point of church is this. It's just one thing. It's did you see Jesus? It drives everything that we do. That we, as the church of 1122, we're a movement for all people. Regardless of who you are, what you've done, it doesn't even matter. We're a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. And we hope the parking situation is great. And we hope you can find a seat. And we hope that the music is inspiring and points you to Jesus. And we hope that your kids have an incredible experience in our kids' ministry program. And we hope that the messages are engaging. But all of that is irrelevant if you don't see Jesus. That's the whole point. And these people are face-to-face, face-to-face with Jesus. And they don't get it. And so that's what he says. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. He's like, you didn't get it? Remember, we sent prophet after prophet after prophet. We had major prophets and minor prophets. We had like a varsity and a JV, and we sent them all to you, and you still don't get it. And so he gets to, chapter, he gets to verse 27, and essentially Jesus says, if you've got your Bibles, open to the beginning, because in verse 27 it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he says, all right, boys and girls, sit down, get your Bibles out, here we go. Do you remember? And he walks them through the entire Old Testament. That's what it says. All the scriptures. And he says, look, the whole point of all the scriptures is about one thing. It's about me. All the Sunday school classes you went to. All right? All the Christmas pageants. All the, all the VBSs. All of that. All of this. From Genesis to Malachi, it had one point, And the point was me. And maybe, just maybe, he took them to Genesis 1.1. And said, hey, you remember in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Remember that part? And then you remember in chapter 2 where, where God says, let us make mankind in our image? I was one of the us. And maybe he took him to, to Genesis chapter 3 where it says that, that God takes the dust of the earth and he puts it into the form of a man and then breathes the ruach or the life or the breath into man and he becomes, he becomes a living being. And when the very first man opens his eyes, he's face to face with God. And maybe he said, that's why God sent me, his only begotten son, so that you would know that he wants to be face to face with you again. 
And maybe he said, hey, do you remember um, in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve sinned? And then God comes and curses Eve. He cursed Adam and Eve and the whole creation. But remember in his curse to Eve, and remember he said, I will put enmity between your offspring and this enemy. And one of your, your male offspring, one day this enemy will strike his heel, but that boy will crush his head. And maybe he said, hey, God was talking about me. And maybe he said, hey, you remember when Adam and Eve get banished or kicked out of the garden because God cannot dwell in the presence of sin? But he made a covering to cover their shame and cover their nakedness. And an animal had to die to give up its fur to, for the covering of Adam and Eve. That was pointing to me. And maybe, maybe he took him to Abraham. Maybe he said, hey, you remember Abraham, Father Abraham, and many sons? Remember that? And remember how God goes to, his name was Abram at first, and he, and he calls Abram to leave the, the Ur of Chaldees where he lived and go to a land that he would show him, the promised land. And you remember that Abraham put his faith in God. And that God said about Abraham that, that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see, guys, maybe he took the little Bible study and said that was to let you know that you're not saved by what you do, but you're saved by where you put your faith. And that Abraham was a friend of God. And maybe he said, the reason I'm here is so that you could know that that God wants to be your friend. And maybe he, talked him, he took him to Abraham and Isaac and said, do you remember in Sunday school where, where Abraham took his only begotten son up onto this mountain to sacrifice him? But instead of sacrificing his son, there was a ram, and he sacrificed, sacrificed it as a substitute. That had nothing to do with Abraham and Isaac. That had everything to do with an almighty God sacrificing his only begotten son as a substitute for you. Maybe that's where he took him. And then maybe he taught him about Noah, or maybe he, took him, um, <clears throat> maybe he taught about Moses and said, don't you remember Moses comes on the scene, you know, gray hair, beard, staff, tablets, let my people go. Remember him? That wasn't about Moses, it was actually about me. Remember when the nation of Israel was captive in Egypt and they were enslaved? And then God sent, God sent uh, plague after plague after plague, and on the 10th plague, the angel of death passed over Egypt. And killed the firstborn of every family except the ones that had taken the blood of a spotless lamb and put them on the doorpost of their house. See, that wasn't about a blood. It wasn't about, it wasn't about a lamb. It was about me. Maybe he took them there. And maybe he took them um, to the Ten Commandments and said, you remember in Exodus chapter 20 when Moses is up on the mountain and God invites Moses and he says, I am your God and you are my people. And Moses was like, we didn't even do anything to be your people yet. And God's like, I know this is an invitation of grace. I'm choosing you regardless of what you've done. And then he gives the Ten Commandments. And, and maybe the guys in the Bible study are like, yeah, we know the commandments, and they're hard to keep. And Jesus says, I know the point of the commandments is so that you would know that, that you're not a mistaker in need of a life coach, but you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And maybe he, maybe he took them to like Exodus 35 and the description of the tabernacle. And so you know God's heart's desire is to tabernacle or to dwell with his people. And Jesus was saying the whole point of the tabernacle was to point to me so that you would know that sacrifice had to be made so that we could be together. And maybe he took him to Leviticus 16, to which all of you are like, oh, yeah, we read that every week at our house, Leviticus 16. So you know the Day of Atonement? These Jewish boys would have known the Day of Atonement, that one time a year all the nation of Israel would get together, confess their sin. The priests would take the confessed sins, and they would transfer the sin to the head of this goat called a scapegoat. And then cast the goat as far as the east is from the west. And then they would take this other lamb or goat, take it into the Holy of Holies, shed its blood, sprinkle its blood on the law, on the broken Ten Commandments to cover over the sin for one year. Maybe Jesus took them to Leviticus 16 and said, look, it wasn't about goats and lambs. It was about me. The whole thing was about me. And maybe he took them to the prophets. Or maybe he took them to the Psalms, like Psalm chapter 22. And maybe he leaned in and said, hey, were you at Golgotha? Were you at Calvary a few days ago when I was crucified? And they were like, yeah. Hey, do you remember when I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the whole sky went black. They're like, yeah, we had no idea what was happening. 
He's like, well, don't you remember Psalm chapter 22? It starts off this way by King David. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. That, that a thousand years ago, David wrote down this. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And maybe the guys in the Bible study were going, oh, my goodness. I remember people saying those exact words to you. Save yourself if you really are the king of kings. Do you remember that? And do you, and do you remember Psalm chapter 22 when he said this? On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Jesus is saying to them, I was the only one that has ever fulfilled that. I'm the only baby that was ever born righteous. And some of you have just had babies, and you're like, not my precious little angel. <laughs> Give it a minute, okay? <laughs> Ask every parent of toddlers in here. Like, no, you gave birth to a little demon center baby, okay? They're cute and precious and have your name, and you love them. And you do not have to teach them to sin, okay? They are not righteous. But Jesus said that he was. He was born that way. And then he says this. He goes, do you remember watching the crucifixion when I was there? And, and a thousand years, a thousand years ago, we sent a prophet to say this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. That was described. That was to describe when, the, when they stabbed me with a spear and my strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember when I screamed out, I thirst? David said I was going to do that. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now here's the thing. When David wrote down these words, it was a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. It was 500 years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of punishment. So when the, when the people read Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus, they had no idea what he's talking about. Maybe in this little Bible study, as Jesus is unpacking it, he's going, yeah, they didn't understand because it hadn't happened yet because this was talking about me. And then maybe he took them all the way to verses 30 and 31 of chapter 22 of Psalms, and he says, posterity shall serve him, that's us. And it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Again, that's us. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's us. That he has done it. That's the way Psalm 22 ends. And maybe in this Bible study, he says, you remember how on the cross the last thing I said is it is finished? It's because I was proclaiming that he has done it. And they're scratching their head. And they probably mooed a lot because that's what Christians do. You know, they're like, mm, that is so insightful. I had never thought of that. And so he could tell they still don't get it. So maybe he took them from the Psalms to the prophets. Said, you remember, remember Sunday school class? And remember Isaiah? Remember Psalm 53? Come on, we all memorize this as little good Jewish kids. Remember 53.3? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And maybe in this Bible study he leaned in and said, Look boys, I didn't just take a beating. I took on your sin. What Isaiah was talking about here was talking about what I was going to do on the cross. The most important word there is for. That I was crushed for your sin. And maybe he walked him through all of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And then maybe he said, hey, don't you remember the last Christmas pageant? You remember when everybody at church showed up in their bathrobes and stuff? And don't you remember the angel proclaims, I bring good news to all the people? 
Not just the religious people, not just the Jewish people, but all the people. That unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior has been born. Not a, not a rabbi, not another teacher, but a Savior. Don't you remember that? Or do you, how about my first cousin John? Remember my first cousin John the baptizer? And he would out there, crazy guy, crazy hair, used to eat weird food. And people would show up and he would say, repent, be baptized. And then one day... I walked out to the River Jordan, and he said, Behold. That means shut up. Everybody wake back up. Get off Facebook and listen. Behold. Pay attention. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And I walked into that water and got baptized. And you remember the heavens opened up, and God the Father said, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. Don't you remember that? And then maybe you remember that over and over and over, I said, I am. I am. By the way, in Hebrew, I am is the covenant name of God. And so when people would say, hey, Jesus, show us God, he would say, ta-da, I am. And he said things like, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 14, when Philip asked, hey, hey, Jesus, how about just show us the Father? He says, Philip, if you see me, you see the Father. And they said, well, show us the way. And he goes, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus taught and when, they, when, when, when Jewish men heard that, they heard the way, they, they, felt, they thought of the law. And when they heard the truth, they thought about the prophets. And when they heard the life, they thought about the wisdom and poetry, literature in the scriptures. And so Jesus sits down with them and walks them through the entire Old Testament and said, there's one point, there's one point. It's all about Jesus. It's all about me. And he ends his Bible study there. And again, this makes me feel better as a preacher. And they don't get it. And they don't get it. They're like, well, that is so interesting, all right? They just don't get it. And he's saying the whole point was about me to come and suffer and die on the cross for your sins and on the third day be resurrected from the grave. And they're like, uh, okay, you want to get something to eat? So verse 28, does it sound like church today? I swear it does, <laughs> right? You're just up here preaching your guts out, just unpacking that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecy and all the law. And then some people are like, where do you want to go for dinner? Same thing, it's very biblical. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going to go farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Listen, this is good news. This is good news. That being a follower of Jesus is not just about information. It's not. That Jesus doesn't just want to take your head and pop it open and just dump a bunch of Bible verses in there and that you know all about God. Because these guys knew all about Jesus. They knew all about God. They knew, I don't think he gave them much new information. They, they got it in their head, but they didn't really get it at the heart level. And so it wasn't at the end of this incredible Bible study. Seriously, it had to be the best Bible study of all time. He's not just reading the book. He wrote the book. It's a big deal. And they're like, ah, we're kind of hungry. But when he sits down with them and breaks the bread in fellowship, in relationship, then, here's, here's what's important, their eyes were open. Theologians call that illumination. Sometimes it happens to you, right? You've been here and been here and been here, and you're like, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it. And then one day you go, oh my gosh, I get it. Same sermon, I got the same sermon every week, I had to tell you that. And then sometimes people are like, I get it for the very first time. And so Jesus you know, pops open a biscuit, and they're like, I get it, it's Jesus, and boom, he's gone, all right? Because he just likes to jack with people. So, verse 32, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scripture? If you're honest, if you're honest, that's happening to some of you. You've been here for two or three weeks, 
and you do not believe what I'm talking about, and you really don't want to believe it. You don't. And you showed up on time the first week, and people are singing, and had their hands up, and going crazy, and you're like, well, it's like a Coldplay concert, and people are crying, and you're like, what is this? This is crazy. And then you heard the message, and you're like, I don't know if I should laugh or be offended. I'm a little of both. Like, funny, funny, funny. Hey, shut up. That was mean. And if, and if your friends and family are like, well, you going to that church, and, and some, they, they think you're joining a cult or think you're going crazy, and they ask you, do you believe that stuff? And you're like, no, 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 I'm not going to be one of them. But yet, deep in your heart, something's happening. And you're like, oh, dang, I think I'm going to be one of them. It's kind of getting on me. I used to get shake it by Monday, but now it stretches all the way to Wednesday. I have even gone on a Thursday night. It is crazy. And you know what's happening is something in here is just stirring, and you can't quite explain it. Theologians call it the wooing of the Holy Spirit, that he's just drawing you in. Okay, And you can fight it. I love to watch you fight it from here. It's fun. When Jesus has you in a headlock, you're walking out with a limp. That's just how it goes. It just is. Ask the guy sitting next to you. You're like, really? He's like, yeah, really. And, and it's almost men. It's like this, okay? Not that you would admit this, but do you remember when you first, when you first realized that you were falling in love with your girl? Do you remember that? And if somebody would ask you in that moment, do you love her? You'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa there, Hoss, all right? We've just been on a few dates. We are not letting her like, change our Facebook status, okay? We're just hanging out. But you know, as you begin to evaluate, you're like, uh-oh. I sure have been in a lot of frozen yogurt, and I just watched The Notebook, and I kind of liked it. I think I'm done. You were being wooed? That's what's happening here. They're like, didn't we know, did our hearts not burn within us? So their eyes are open, their hearts burn while he opens the scriptures, and then verse 33, 33, and they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon, and they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36. And they were talking about these things, and Jesus himself stood among them. So they come busting in, like, y'all, it's real. What the women said is real. What Peter said is real. We were on our way to Emmaus, and then there he is, all right? And he was teaching us Bible study, and it was awesome, and I was so deep, and I didn't understand what he was talking about. And then he cracked open a biscuit, and we were like, yeah, it's Jesus, and he left. And right when the people were like, are you sure? They looked at it, well, just ask him for yourself. There he is again. How do you do that? <laughs> now, here's the thing. If you, if you, tonight, if you go home and you go to CNN or or history channel or fox all those kind of places are going to have all of these shows that describe what happened they're going to try to describe and explain just some realities because the reality is two thousand years ago there's a jewish carpenter in the middle east with 11 men he had 12 one hung himself now 11 men most of them are fishermen one was a tax collector this little group of nobodies and this man named jesus of nazareth he never, he never recorded a sermon. He never wrote a book. One time he scribbled in the sand. Nobody Instagrammed it. We have no idea exactly what he jotted down. And now, 2,000 years later, today, all over the world, 2 billion people are going to gather together and say he is alive. And so all of these TV shows are going to try to explain what happened. What happened? There's only one legitimate explanation. He's alive. It's the only thing that makes sense at all is that Jesus, he didn't float up into the spirit. It wasn't like his followers said, hey, we've got to keep the dream alive. They actually quit, but that Jesus actually was resurrected on the third day. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a few reasons. I could do this for an hour. I'm going to give you a few reasons why I believe in the bodily resurrection. It's this. Is that, maybe you didn't know this. Jesus appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses over 40 days in the town in which he was killed. See, that's a big deal. Some people saw him on the cross. They saw him die. They saw him buried. And then 
Three weeks later, they saw him at Publix. And they were like, what? That's how, on the day of Pentecost, that's how 3,000 people come to Christ. Why? Because they saw a dead man walking. And if you die and come back to life three days later and you promised you were going to do it, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll go to your church. I'll watch it on video. I'll wear your tennis shoes. I'll drink your Kool-Aid, get my hair cut funny. I don't care. I'm with you. That's what Jesus did. And the entire Roman Empire wants to shut this thing down. You get that? They want to shut it down. And you know what? All they have to do, all they have to do, produce dead Jesus. It's over. If they are like, no, 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 he's dead, and they go to the tomb, they roll the t- tomb away, and they bring dead Jesus up, they hang him in the center square, and we ain't nobody looking for Easter, bun- Easter eggs today. No, we're done. But, but they can't produce a dead body. Why? Because he's alive. And so they begin to say, well, maybe the disciples stole his body. Really? The disciples? The 11 guys that are scared and they're hiding up in the upper room? By the way, Jesus didn't train like a band of ninjas. Do you understand? They're fishermen walking around telling stories and stuff, right? Trying to keep children from talking to him. They're not that tough. Now, some fishermen are tough. You know, give them a fillet knife, they'll stick you. But the disciples didn't, like, kill the Roman soldiers. They're all still alive. And it's not like there were two soldiers that nodded off. But there were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, probably 48 Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb. And you mean to tell me that these 11 scared men sneak in there in the night, and they don't kill them, they don't Jackie Chan them, they move the tombstone away, they sneak in, they take dead Jesus, throw him over his shoulder, and sneak back out while nobody saw it. No. If you believe that, you have more faith than I do. So then people come up with this one. It's called the swoon theory. You ever heard of the swoon theory? I mean, watch TV this afternoon, you're going to see it. And the swoon theory goes this way. This is my favorite one. And by favorite, I mean the most ridiculous, okay? The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't die on the cross. That yes, he was crucified, he was, all those things happened, that's a reality, and he was put in the tomb. But when they put him in the tomb, now again, these Roman soldiers who were professionals at killing people, when they put him in the tomb that he didn't die, he just like went into a coma because of all the punishment that he had taken. And while he was in the coma with over 100 pounds of burial wrapping around him, in the cool, damp coma, three days later, he wakes up from the coma, kind of gets out of his, his burial cloth, goes over to the, to the rock and, and rolls it away, and then takes a seven-mile jog to Emmaus. That's what the swoon theory teaches. And none of the soldiers saw it. Now, here's the reality. I'm 41 years old. If I don't sleep exactly right in my comfortable king-size bed, I wake up with a cramp. You ever do that? You wake up and you're like, why am I sore from sleeping? Really? That going from here to here requires Advil for me. <laughs> but Jesus could be beaten, battered, bruised, crucified, three days, wrapped up like a mummy, put into a cave, wake up on the third day feeling great, going, I'm ready to run the Donna and just jog seven miles to Emmaus. I don't think so, Scooter, all right? <laughs> and then how do you explain the disciples? What empowered the disciples? They, they had quit. They were scared. They were afraid. They were running for their life. They're going back to their old jobs. And then, before you know it, they're standing before the Sanhedrin saying, you do whatever you have to for us, but we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. What they saw and what they heard was a dead man that had come back to life. His name was Jesus. And every single one of the disciples were martyred. Not for what they believed. People die for what they believe in all the time. Before they had seen and heard that Peter was crucified upside down. That, that John was boiled alive and he wouldn't die, so they put him on the Isle of Patmos. And so he writes the book of Revelation and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was kind of busy. Or James, they threw him off the top of a building, he broke both his legs, and they say, just recant, just say he's not the son of God. He wouldn't do it, so they bash his head in with a stick. So people will die for crazy stuff that they believe, but who dies for a lie? 
Who is saying, okay, go ahead and kill me? And I know Jesus is actually in a trunk at the foot of my bed. You know, that's just, this is why I believe in the bodily resurrection. And again, there's proof after proof after proof. And so Jesus shows up in their presence physically, and he says, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit, and he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? Let me tell you what I love. You know who Jesus appears to, shows up to? Not the faithful, not the people that think they've got it all figured out. He shows up to a group of people that were faithless. There are four words to describe the group right there, right? He says that they're startled, they're frightened, they're troubled, and they have doubts. Listen, if you think you've got your act together and you've got it all figured out, God can still use you, okay? But if, you, if you're startled and you're troubled and you're full of doubts and you're afraid, you're going to make a great disciple because that's where Jesus shows up. And some of you right now, you're startled because this week everything was going fine and you got a phone call from the doctor and you're startled. Or this week, right when everything was going okay, your, your college-aged daughter called you and you thought she was fine and she ain't fine and you were startled. Or you got a call from your boss and you thought you were going to be with this company forever and you were startled and you showed up here like, what am I going to do? And let me, show, let me tell you, Jesus steps right in in that moment to you and says, peace, I give you. And some of you, some of you are afraid, you're frightened. Some of you are afraid to be a Christian because you're like, oh my gosh, I never wanted to be one. I would have had to give up and step over that line. And I don't know if you know this, but the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. Fear paralyzes. Faith always produces action. And these folks are afraid, they're frightened. Some of you know that you know that you know that God has called you to do something and you've been afraid. And Jesus steps into that fear and says, I give you peace, peace. Some of you are troubled. And the reason you're troubled is because life is not going the way you thought life was going to go. I mean, you never saw yourself getting divorced. You never thought that you were going to be bankrupt. You never thought you were going to be unemployed. You never thought you were going to have no relationship with your children that you gave your life to raise. You never, you're troubled. You're like, God, I did not see this coming. And Jesus will step in and appear to you, even in your trouble, and say, peace, peace. And some of you have doubts. Let's just be real honest, okay? And I know it's dangerous to be honest at church, but the fake you is doing just fine. But listen, you ever have doubts? I mean, do you ever have some major, major, I don't mean like praying for something crazy and then be like, oh, I doubt that's going to happen. I'm talking about doubts about the whole thing. This might ruin your, your view of me. It's just fine. But man, there's some days I just have some crazy doubts. I wake up some morning and think, what if we're just making this whole thing up? I mean, there's a lot of people le- believe a whole lot of different things and I'm kind of all in on the Jesus thing. You got it? I mean, it's kind of my whole life, all right? But there are these moments where I have these doubts. I'm like, what if we're just making it all up? And I remember one time I was flying back from somewhere on a mission trip or going to set one up or something, but I'm sitting next to this girl from Germany, I think, and, and she's got no frame of reference for Jesus or Christianity or whatever, and I'm trying to explain the meta-narrative of the Scripture to her in just a few minutes. And, and I, so I started from the beginning. I was like, all right, so here's how it works, all right? There's one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all right? And he, in and of himself, is this perfect relationship. And then out of, out of an overflow for himself, he creates everything, people and all this, all right? And he puts these two naked people in the garden, and everything's perfect for like one page of the Bible. And then the snake comes in and tricks them to eat this apple. And then God's like, uh-uh, you're out. And so he kicks them out. And so they got, you know, they got to run around, and they make all the people in the world, and then there's a flood, and there's a boat, and it's kind of weird, and then it starts over again, and then there's this guy named Abraham, and, and there's all these family conflict, and he's got a bunch of wives, and the kids hate each other, and all that, and then they end up in Egypt, and then Moses comes through, and he like, 
he let my people go, and there's these plagues, and kids die, and then they walk through the water on dry ground, and then they're in the promised land. And out of the promised land, they start sending the prophets saying, hey, this kid's coming. He's going to be awesome. And then at Christmas, this kid comes, and he's awesome. It's baby Jesus. And then he grows up, and he, like, makes fish sandwiches for people and heals people, and blind people can see and walks on water. And then he gets crucified on the cross for our sins, and then they... they bury him and on the third day he raises again and then he floats up to heaven just whoa and on his way up he's like tell everybody about it and one day he's coming back on a horse she's like that's what you believe Uh uh-huh want want to believe it too want to you know (laughs) i really do that's it Sounds like a crazy dream. You ever try to describe your dream and it makes so, sen- so much sense to you? Start talking about it, you're like, oh, okay. You know what the anchor for me is? Here's my anchor. Here's what, here's what brings me back to true north and goes, how can I believe all this? Because Easter. Because how, how do you explain? All that sounds crazy, but how do you explain Jesus' death and resurrection? How do you explain the expanse of the church? How do you explain these scared men that now were empowered by the Holy Spirit to tell people about Jesus? How? There's only one way, because a dead man came out of the grave. And he's standing here before all these people, and he walks in to them being startled and frightened and troubled and doubt. And he says to this, peace be with you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you peace. See, you, you go looking for rest, you go looking for peace, it's going to be tough. You go to Jesus, and he gives it to you. So he goes on to say, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as as you see that I have. See, he proves himself. Hey, if you have a hard time believing this stuff, okay, just ask him to prove himself. Say, God, I want to believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling and said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. And then he said, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He goes back through the Bible study, the whole thing. But this time it's different. Because this time in verse 45 it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See, there are some of you here that for the very first time, God's going to open your mind. He's going to put a burning in your heart. He's going to open your eyes. And for the very first time, even though you've heard all this stuff before, I mean, you were here last Easter. You heard it last Easter. But for the very first time, you're going to be like, okay, I get it. And he says to him, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, you have experienced. So the question is, have you experienced it? Personally, have you experienced it? So here's the point. The tomb's empty. Jesus is alive. Your sins can be forgiven and all his righteousness given to you. Have your eyes and mind been open to that truth? Are you a witness to it? Have you experienced it? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, that you will be saved. Well, the reality is, is that you're not just saved from your sin. If you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you will be saved from your sin, but you will also be saved to a right standing with God or His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For God made Him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made His righteousness. It's not just that Jesus forgives you of your sin, but He also, he also imputes or gives to you His righteousness, His perfection. My question is, have you experienced that? See, 
the, the, the double imputation of Christ, meaning that he gets credit for all of our sin and we get credit for all of his righteousness. It'd be like this. I know we got a bunch of golfers here, right? The second highest holy day in Jacksonville. First is Easter and then it's TPC. So I know, that's us. And so <clears throat> it would be like if I go out to play golf, I'm not very good, but, but I'll go play with you if you pay for it. Um, but it would be like at the end of my round, if I were to take my scorecard to God and say, all right, God, um, I want your grace on my scorecard. A lot of us think of salvation like him taking our scorecard and just taking away all the bad shots, taking away all the bogeys and the double bogeys and the eights. But who gives himself anything more than an eight? Okay, you don't have to. Just believe it. And he takes all the snowmen and takes all the shanks and the missed putts and the, you know, and the foot wedges and all of that, and he takes them all away and gives me back my scorecard, and I'm like, oh, there's not much left. You see, a lot of times that's what we think about salvation, that we're just saved from our sin. But, but the, the Bible has us believe that not only we're saved from our sin, but we're saved to righteousness. So to be saved means it, it's not that I just play a bad round of golf and he takes away my bad shots, but as I play a round of golf, but I'm, I'm in a scramble. I'm in a scramble with like Bubba Watson and Tiger back when he was good and Rory. And I might get up there and put one in the water or put one in the woods and they're like, that's okay, bro. And then Bubba left-handed with his pink driver just like a good bulldog puts it right out there in the middle. And I'm like, I can use that one. He goes, yeah, you can use that one. And all the putts and all the approach shots and everything. And at the end of the round, when I go home and my wife says, how'd you do? And I was like, well, that was 1,800. She was like, wow, really? But yeah, look at the scorecard. That's the gospel. It's called the great exchange. But the reality is, have you experienced it? Not just believe in it, but experienced it. I was talking to a guy, this is how I'll close, with a brand new guy to 1122. He said he grew up in church. He knew all about Jesus. He could tell you about John 3.16. But it wasn't until he experienced a picture of the gospel that he surrendered his life to Jesus. He was 17 years old, grew up in a good Christian home, all that. He was kind of insecure like every 17-year-old is about, about what people thought of him. And so he began to, he was in a band, played drums, so he began to steal a bunch of stuff and sell it to, to get like really good drummer's gear so all the people would think he was awesome. And it kind of worked. People thought he was awesome because he had this cash, you know. And then he knew, what he, he knew what he was doing was wrong and he felt guilty about it. And then one day he got busted. And the people that he was stealing from found out, and they showed up at his house, and they began to accuse him, standing in his driveway, saying, you thief, man, you've stolen from us. And his dad, who loved the Lord, went and stood in the gap between the accuser and his son. And he didn't defend him and try to say, no, 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 it's not that wrong. He looked at him and said, okay, yeah, he has sinned. What do we owe you? And his dad wrote a check for a debt that the son could not pay and gave it to the accuser, and the accuser went away. And that kid, who's now an adult, happily married with kids and all that, he said it was in that moment when he experienced the gospel that his eyes were open, that his mind was open, and that he began to understand what Christ did on the cross. But it's even better than that. Here's why. His dad didn't pay off his debt and then say, all right, move out of my house, good luck. You're, you don't owe anything. But his dad took him back in his house and treated him as a son because that's exactly what he is. That's the gospel. So if you believe in your heart, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord or the way that we say it around here if you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ then you can be saved saved from your sin and saved into a right standing with God I want to give you that opportunity would you please bow your head close your eyes not because it's super sacred but just to block out any distractions and if today for the very first time you are ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ if you are ready to say, yes, God, I believe in my heart that you rose Jesus from the dead. 
And I want to confess with my mouth that I'm not the boss of me anymore. I'm not the Lord of my life. But I want to surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ. Would you raise your hand right where you are? Would you say, God, here I am. I surrender to you. That for the very first time, my eyes have been opened. My mind is open. My heart has been on fire. And Jesus, you are my Lord. And raise your hand high. And then you pray a very simple prayer. It's not your hand in the air that saves you. It's not any kind of magical words that you say that save you. But what Christ did on the cross and his resurrection that saves you. You just admit that you're a sinner. That you let God know that you believe that he, he brought Jesus back from the dead. And then you confess Jesus as your Lord. And the Bible says that you're saved. You're saved from your sin and you're saved to and right standing with God. Dear Father in heaven, God, I thank you so much. That you love us so much that you sent your only begotten son to be the price payer for us. God, I thank you in that nobody has to perform or pretend anymore. That we can be real with you because Jesus really rose from the grave. God, I pray that you would remind every believer, every follower, every Christian in here of that. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would invade hearts, that you would drop defenses, that eyes would be open, that minds would be open, that hearts would burn for you and you alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand to your feet as we respond on this Easter Sunday. Worship is just a response to who God is and what he's done. And we're going to respond by singing, by joining our voices together and singing about that resurrection power. If you're a regular here at 1122, we respond by bringing our first and best, bringing our tithes and offerings, because he first loved us by giving us his best. You do it electronically, you do it at the giving kiosk, you do it in one of the giving boxes, however you normally do it, that'll work. And we also respond by coming to the altar and just laying some of those burdens down at the feet of Jesus. However you need to, please respond.